Like, where is that in men today? Where is the bold willingness to say, I will not relent. I'm not going to shrink back. I'm going to finish my race with joy. I will testify to the glorious gospel of grace, even at the threat of death. You're listening to a sermon series titled Romans, preached at Shoreline Church. For more audio or theological content, please visit thisisshoreline.com. Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for your word and that your word is eternal. Lord, our lives, as we just sang about and reflected on, our lives are very temporal. But Lord, we will, with every knee bowed, every tongue confessing, we will stand before your judgment throne one day. And Lord, it's our desire to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And so we ask, Lord, that you'd bless this time as we study the scriptures, as we open this text, would your Holy Spirit illuminate it to us and encourage our hearts, strengthen us by your grace. And Lord, may we be moved not only emotionally, but may we be moved by the scriptures to be obedient to it. And we ask this with the help of the Holy Spirit through the work of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, we come to the end of the book of Romans today. At least that's what it will appear to be. It's been an incredible year as we've gone verse by verse through the book of Romans. If this is your first Sunday or first few Sundays, we take the text of Scripture and we exposit it, meaning we, we allow it to expose what the meaning is, and then we uh, study it and apply it rightly. And we've been in the book of Romans since the beginning of February last year, 2021, and we come to what appears to be the end of the book. And the Apostle Paul has been concluding his remarks to the church in Rome regarding the gospel that he preaches. He shared that gospel from Romans chapter 1 all the way to Romans chapter 11. And then starting in chapter 12, through the end of or middle of 15, he's been giving a glimpse of what a church unified, living together as living sacrifices looks like. Then last week, starting in verse 14 of chapter 15, we saw that Paul has a very intentional ministry, and that is to bring the gospel where Christ has not yet been named. Now, as we begin to conclude this chapter, starting in verse 22, Paul is going to share his travel itinerary with the church in Rome to alert them as to what is next in his ministry priority. And he's going to highlight three destinations, and I'll put them on the screen for you. He's going to, writing this from Corinth, is going to be going to Jerusalem. That's his intention. That's about 800 miles. He's going to go from Jerusalem to Rome, which is 1,500 miles. But that's just a short stop on his way to Spain, which is another 700 miles. If you know your map of the Mediterranean, we'll put it on the screen if you don't, um, that is a large ground amount of ground to cover. That's about 3,000 miles by land and sea, not by air, Of course, the technology has not been invented yet. And I really admire the confidence and the desire that Paul expresses in these verses. He's making plans to travel this distance. And if you're familiar with the book of Acts, traveling with Paul was not a walk in the park. In other words, if Paul were to invite you to join him on his next missionary journey, 
Chances are, if you know anything about travel, this is not going to be a quick, easy jet trip on Southwest to Dallas. This is not going to be easy. Uh, if you're a type A personality and you like all of your plans on a spreadsheet laid out somewhat like I do, you would not have a lot of great time uh, traveling with Paul. Why? Because he's always getting shipwrecked. He's always preaching to crowds that want to kill him. He's always, uh, he says, in danger on the roads from bandits. That was a thing. And then he was in danger in the village from venomous snakes. And so if you and I were to travel with Paul on just one of his missionary trips and experience what he experienced, next year for the sign-up for the missions trip, you'd be like, nope, <laughs> I'm going to stay at home and I'm just going to um, watch Hulu. I'm going to avoid it. And so yet, as we open these verses together, I don't want us for a minute to think, eh, this is just a travel itinerary of a first century missionary. It's not that important. I think what we're going to see in just 11 verses is that these are packed with incredible truth for us, that these are packed with not only a vision of, of Paul's travel plans for the church in Rome, but also we get a great glimpse at how the first century churches were working together in supporting one another. So we get a great glimpse. We also get a challenge for us as we look at our own stewardship of money. Yes, we're going to talk about that today. And it's always a joy to talk about money in the church. Now, as we look at this, though, please don't for a, a minute think that Paul is going because he just wants to see the world, that he has figured out how to be a geo-arbitrage life hacker, and he's going to live the van life, or he's going to check it off the bucket list and, and go see Europe. That's not his, his intent. His intent is there are some people who have not yet heard the name of Jesus. And so that is what drives him. He's a man on God's mission to see Christ named. So what we're going to see in these verses today is three little sections. We're going to see in verses 22 through 24, Spain's anticipation. They don't know about it yet, but he's anticipating going to Spain. Uh, we'll see in the middle section, Jerusalem's aid. And then finally, we'll see Paul's appeal. So let's begin with that first section, Spain's anticipation, verse 22. Note with me in the Bible that it says, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. What is the reason? Well, the reason is what Pastor Micah taught us last week. So go backwards or flip the page to verse 20. Here's the reason he's not come to Rome yet. He says, thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel, not where Christ has already been named lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. Paul says, oh, I've desired to be with you, to see you, but I've been busy. I've been busy doing ministry uh, to places that have not yet been reached. And I think just for a minute, let's make sure we define some terms. North America as people groups is reached, meaning we have the Bible in our languages, we have the Bible uh, access. We can turn on the radio and for the most part hear the scriptures or hear prayer or uh, hear Christian truth, hear the gospel. So we have access. We are reached with the gospel. There's still lost people to be sure and that's why we wanna continue to see churches get planted in every generation among uh, various people groups, in, among reached people. But it's so important that we not forget the unreached. And so uh, Paul says, listen, this area is reached, and now it's time for me to continue reaching the unreached. So verse 23, he says, but now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, 
at least among unreached, because now they're reached, and since I've longed for many years to come to you. This has been a a desire for many years. Verse 24, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I've enjoyed your company for a while. Christopher Ash says this. He says, Paul was like the early American frontiersman who would always move further west if they could see smoke from another settler's cabin. He has no more openings in the wild east and can only stay a while because he's straining at the leash to get on towards the wild west. I like that. That, that is what drove Paul to the farthest reaches at that time of the civilized world. Spain, if you just saw it on the map, that's about as far west as you can go before you're into the Atlantic. And Paul's heart was to see the gospel reach even the Spaniard. In fact, uh, it's very interesting that at the time Paul's writing this letter in the 50s of the first century, that at, at that exact time in Spain, you had a lot of influence coming out, a lot of men who were being greatly influenced in culture. We had Lucian, the poet. We had Marshall, not known for his arts, but known for his epigrams. We have Quintilian, the orator, who is known for his rhetoric. And we have Seneca, the uh, great Stoic philosopher. These were all Spaniards. Uh, and so perhaps Paul is thinking, if I can get to Spain, if I can reach Spain for Christ, think of the influence that would extend as God's truth goes out to the ends of the Roman Empire. So he says, I have longed to be with you. In fact, we know Paul was a Roman citizen. We learned that from Acts 22. Uh, but we have no record of Paul ever visiting Rome prior to the writing of the book of Romans. In fact, we don't even have a record of where the church of Rome came from. We know Peter, or we don't know that Peter or any of the apostles planted it. We do get a little glimpse of what may have happened in Acts 2, verse 10, where Luke says at Pentecost, there were some who came from Rome and who evidenced the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and were not sure, but those visitors may have gone back as new believers and they may have founded a church in Rome. What we do know is in 49, the year 49, for around five years until his death, the emperor Claudius expelled all of the Jews from the city of Rome. And that government uh, decree caused a tent maker named Aquila and his wife Priscilla to leave the church uh, and eventually meet up with Paul. And that's no doubt where he heard about the church that was... um, growing in the city of Rome. So Paul's goal in writing this letter, it was a fundraising, missionary fundraising letter, but his goal may have been, we don't know for sure, it may have been to set up a missionary hub where he could reach Spain, reach the farther western uh, frontier, and that Rome, that church, would be that, that hub to send him out, just like Antioch was for his missionary endeavors through Greece and Macedonia. But notice that Paul is anticipating in these verses this being a short stop. I'm just coming to pass through. I'm going to Spain. And Paul is anticipating that the Romans here will support him. Notice that he says, I expect to be helped on my journey, verse 24, there by you. Once I've enjoyed your company for a while. If you have your own Bible and a pen, would you circle the word helped there in verse 24? I anticipate to be helped on my journey. The word help is in the NIV translated assist. And it's a fascinating Greek word that when you start looking at its context in the New Testament, it begins to shape 
what, what our response is to be uh, as global Christians who are specifically senders. It's a fascinating Greek word. So we, we read about it in the New Testament. It, it is um, translated sent, someone who's sent out from the church. Or it's translated helped, as it is here. Or it's translated support. Uh, the idea is that the church sends people out to do ministry in other places. And the best use of this word is found in 3 John chapter 5. This really is a theme for who we are as global Christians, specifically as senders. So some of you have said, I want to be a goer. I'm ready to go to the ends of the earth. And others of you have said, I'm not ready to go. I don't think I'm called to go, but I'm, I want to send. I want to be a support. So this is a, a theme verse for us as senders. Uh, here's what John says. He says, beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they've gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. So just leave that up for a minute, Randy. There are four things that we see jumping right off the, the text there from 3 John. Um, we talk about sending missionaries. First of all, if you notice, there's a variety of efforts. He says it's a faithful thing in all of your efforts. So it's not just prayer. Prayer is important. It's not just 100 bucks a month. It's, it's a lot of efforts. But secondly, notice with me that these are people who have testified before the church. So they're, they're known to the body of Christ. They're not random. Um, we also learned thirdly that these missionaries did not turn to the world for help. As tempting as that might be to go to unbelievers, they didn't accept anything from the Gentiles. Uh, they turned to the Lord and trusted the church to support them. But fourthly, we also look and we realize that we as senders are fellow workers. And so we are fellow workers for the truth. We're incredibly important as senders. There's a famous story about William Carey, who was a great missionary pioneer to India. And he said to his friend Andrew Fuller before he left, he said, I will go down into the pit if you will hold the ropes. And I like that picture. That's, that's what we do as senders. We hold the ropes for those who are going into these unreached places, into the pioneer missionary, uh, we'd say the field, the missionary field, mission field. We hold the ropes for them. We don't just let go. Hey, God bless you. No, we hold the ropes as they descend and, and uh, reach people for Christ. And that's what Paul's asking the church in Rome to do for him. In fact, John Stott says it this way. He says, this word undoubtedly meant more than good wishes and a valedictory prayer. In most cases, it also involves supplying them with provisions and money and sometimes providing them as well with an escort to accompany them at least part of the way. So it's all encompassing. He says, I'm expecting to be helped by you on my journey. So that's the eventual plan, but there's a pit stop first. And let's look at this middle section to see what the however is in verse 25. He says, at present, however, I'm going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. Now, if you're taking note, Acts chapter 11 tells us what happens here. There was ostensibly a famine that, that wrecked and ravaged the world, but disproportionately hit the church in Jerusalem in a very heavy way. 
someone quipped sarcastically that the reason the church in Jerusalem needed aid was because they adopted communism. That they decided, oh, we're just gonna we're just gonna distribute all the goods to everyone. And I would say that's not at all the early church acts uh, two through four. That wasn't communism, where we had to take everything and at the force of a gun or threat we had to give everything up and then share it. That's not the idea at all. The idea is we willingly made sure that everyone had uh, something to take care of them, that no one went without. And so I would reject that uh, idea. Uh, it's clearly a, a famine, and the church in Jerusalem, mostly predominant, predominantly ethnically Jewish church, was really suffering, was really struggling at this time. And so what happened was Paul had gone throughout modern-day Greece, that's Achaia, and Macedonia, and he had gone to strengthen the church and encourage the church, but he also was receiving a collection to bring back to Jerusalem to help the church. In fact, when we read about Macedonia and Achaia, there are some churches that we know about that we read about in the New Testament that, the, that are from that area. So the Philippian church was from this area. Uh, the Thessaloniacan church or the Thessalonian church and the Berean church. Remember the Bereans in Acts 17? They were more noble than the Thessalonians because they didn't just take scripture as spoon fed. Uh, fed. They actually would examine the Bible and test it to what was being taught and that's a noble thing for all of us to do. Uh, and so those churches uh, were from that area. And so you might be tempted to think, yeah, well, hold on. I bet you the Philippians, the Thessalonians, the, the Bereans were loaded. And so they, they gave, but they were so rich, they just gave a little bit off the top and then did a tax write-off because they're just wealthy people. But see, that's not the case whatsoever. And so I want you to hold your place in Romans 15. I want you to turn two books to the right, because we will come back to Romans, and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I want to just look for a minute at what was happening in those churches. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, starting in verse 1. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. That's in Greece. And here's what he says. Verse 1. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of of God that's been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, there, this is going to look like a contradiction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Doesn't that seem contradictory? You'd think, okay, I'm with you on the abundance of joy and the abundance of, of prosperity. But he says, the abundance of joy and the abundance of poverty, the extreme poverty, both of those overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Verse three, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. That's what was going on. The, the early church in Macedonia and Greece, uh, Philippi, Thessalonica, Berea, these were not wealthy churches. They were extremely uh, poor. And yet in their joy and in their poverty, they gave above and beyond. We'll skip over to chapter nine and look with me at verse six. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly, nor under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. Now, (laughs) that's the context these verses are written in. So may I apologize on behalf of the fact that you may have heard these verses stripped of their context by the false prosperity gospel preacher who was on TBN with the really bad hair who basically said that you need to give to his ministry so that you will reap. So if you give, you, you sow, and you'll reap what you sow, and that whole nonsense. In context, by the way, I've said this before, but you know these guys will write you letters and say, if you will just give $100, God will bless it tenfold, and you'll get $1,000 back. And I've always been tempted to write them a letter and say, since you're asking me for money, why don't you send me $100, and then you'll get the 1000 that you've asked for. <laughs> But they wouldn't write me back, I'm sure. So So in context, Paul's writing about a relief ministry to another church. Hey, don't sow sparingly. You'll reap sparingly. Give generously and God will bless you. Look at verse 12. See, this isn't about me trying to gain uh, my, my pocketbook. I just need more money. So the more I give, the more I get back. No, he says in verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, immediate need, but it's also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. You see, what ends up happening is an immediate need is met, but the abundance overflow of that is worship and gratitude, where God's glory and his grace is displayed in the church. So Paul admonishes the church in the city of Corinth, join with the poor Macedonians and the, those from Achaia and give cheerfully, give bountifully, give as an overflow which will produce an overflow of worship. When we are willing to support the work that God is doing, not only in our fellowship, but to the ends of the earth, we get to join in the praise of the nations in giving God glory. Now let's turn back to Romans 15 and see why this was so important to Paul. Now you get a little bit of the context, uh, but notice verse 27. Paul lays it on a little thick here. He says, for they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they also ought to be of service to them in material blessings. So do you see what's happening here? Paul is linking the material blessing with the spiritual blessing. So we've been learning about the spiritual blessings we have as Gentiles that flow out from the Jew. We've been learning that through the book of Romans. Here's a synopsis on the screen. They're not exhaustive, but just a a brief uh, recap. We learn in chapter 15, verse 4, that the scriptures supply endurance and encouragement that bring hope to us. And yet we learn in chapter 3, verse 2, that these very scriptures came through the Jews uh, and they were entrusted with the oracles of God. We learn in chapter 4, verse 13 and 9, 4, that the promises were given to the patriarchs, the Jews, but they were based on grace. They were resting on grace, chapter 4, verse 16, not performance. And those promises benefit us as Gentiles. We learn in 9.5 that Christ is the Savior of Jew and Gentile. Praise God. And yet he came from the Jews. We learn in chapter 11, verse 17, that we as Gentiles share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. And then we learn the very next verse that the root is what supports us, not the other way around. And thus that will eliminate arrogance on our part. So Paul is arguing throughout the letter, and specifically here, because we've reaped these spiritual blessings, 
that extended from the Jews to us as Gentiles. Now we not just must, or not just should, but must uh, support the predominantly ethnically Jewish church in Jerusalem who's suffering. It's not just something we should do, it's something we must do. And so let's read on. He says in verse 28, When therefore I have completed this and have delivered to them what's been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So, did you catch this? Paul does not shy away from expecting the churches, churches to pony up financially. Why? I just want to take a rabbit trail. Paul is not, little time out here, Paul is not raising money to take the tithes and offerings and then fill his pockets for personal gain. He's not doing this to try to expand his influence and expand his worldwide global ministry, Inc. right? That's not what he's trying to do. And so notice in 2 Corinthians 2, in fact, 2 Corinthians has so many parallels to this text um, that we'll even visit a few more. But 2 Corinthians 2, 17, he said to the church, for we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, quorum Deo, in, in the sight of God, in the view of God, we speak in Christ. Notice that Paul says, what an indictment. We're not like so many. We're not like all these many people who are what? Peddlers of God's word. What's a peddler? A peddler is someone who uh, is a salesman who travels from town to town, from city to city, from church to church to sell a product. And it's almost always something they don't personally uh, buy into. So they go from town to town to sell you snake oil. Uh, this is back like in the 1900s, 1800s. So these traveling hucksters, these peddlers would go and they'd sell snake oil. Hey, do you want to get rid of that tummy? Just rub some snake oil on it and you'll have your six-pack abs back. Oh, do you, struggle, uh, do you struggle with anger? Just drink some of the snake oil and, uh, and you'll, you'll be fine. The anger will go away. Uh, and that's what Paul says. We're not. We're not like so many, those who are hucksters, who go from door to door looking for our next customer, trying to make a dollar off of you. No, we have sincerity. Uh, we are not on TBN buying our airtime, trying to pass this prosperity gospel off to you so that you'll send us your money. Uh, no. He, Paul doesn't say, support my vision, buy my book, get in line, or uh, we'll kick you off the bus. That's not the idea here at all. In fact, I encourage you to go back and read 2 Corinthians 6 and see where Paul marks a list of what true ministers look like. And a lot of it's suffering. In fact, in chapter 7, verse 2, he says, make room in your hearts for us. We've wronged no one. We've corrupted no one. We've taken advantage of no one. I'm not a huckster. I'm not, a, I'm not uh, someone who's trying to defraud you, who's peddling the word of God to you. No, I, the word of God has shaped me. I'm submitted to it. And I'm not here to make any money off of you. I'm here uh, to wrong no one, but to point people to Christ. And so uh, Paul was sincere. And thus he could tell the church, you owe this to the other believers uh, because I'm going to steward this financial gift faithfully and carefully. Uh, I just want to, as we're on this rabbit trail, just address the fact that it is important for us to consider that financial giving is not an option to a New Testament believer. It's not an option, it's an obligation. 
but it's a joyful and a cheerful one to be sure. Just like being a member. It's an obligation being in marriage. It's an obligation, but it's a joyful one. It should never be said that, you know, in every area of my life, I am completely submitted to Christ as Lord, except for my bank account, <laughs> except for my wallet. That, that area is off limits to Christ. No, we give to the local church we're, we're submitted to, and this allows elders and deacons to distribute to the needs of the, of the church and for there to be attention given to the priority of the preaching of the word and prayer and also to benevolence, to caring for the flock. So we do that, but we also give to churches in need. Might be in our community, might be overseas. We can sometimes collect that as a church, and we've done that, supporting others. When we give personally outside of um, our support of the church, we're not to announce it with trumpets where we get on social media and go, hey, look at me, I'm giving to these poor people. Like, you know, hashtag blessed. That's not what we're to do. Uh, in, in fact, all giving should spring from verse 27 in Romans 15. He says they were pleased to do it. That should be the motivation, not compulsion, not because the pastor waxed eloquent or barraged you saying, we got to get this building fund going. Now we do have a building fund, just so you know. <laughs> but that's not, that's, that's not the motivator. Like, oh, I guess I should give. Oh, so-and-so gave. Oh, I feel kind of compelled and guilty. No, we give because we get to give. We get to join Christ in his work. It's a privilege to see the generosity of God's people coming together to see God's mission uh, continue. Now, this was Paul's plan. This is all Paul, Paul's plan, but did it play out the way he imagined? Verse 28. Once I drop off this financial blessing to Jerusalem, I'm going to come back to Spain by first stopping off to see you in Rome. Is that what happened? Well, not exactly. Let's look at this third section, Paul's appeal. Verse 30. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. Notice with me that Paul appeals to them in two ways, by the common Lord, Jesus Christ, and the common love, the fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is love. So by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, I appeal to you, not on, not on Paul's appeal, but based on those things, he says, I'm asking you, brothers, to strive together with me in your prayers. Now, we'll come back to that in a moment. But notice there's three things that Paul asks for prayer for. Verse 31. Number one, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. Number two, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. And number three, that by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. I'm reading a book right now by D.A. Carson called Praying with Paul. And it's a great book. I commend it to you. Uh, he talks about how it's important for us to shape our prayers based on New Testament prayers. And I love that. And so there's some things that jump out to me here. Uh, first, Paul, number one, prays for protection against opposition. That's a good prayer. Secondly, he prays for ministry fruit. It's a good prayer. And thirdly, for ministry direction. Those are great, uh, great template for us to pray for. But from what we gather, the only the second prayer request was answered in the affirmative. Paul was able, from what we read in Acts, to deliver the offering that had been collected from the churches. And we have no evidence in the book of Acts. Luke doesn't say that the church in Jerusalem didn't receive it, didn't welcome it. And so uh, he says in the middle there, and secondly, that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints. We, we would argue, okay, from what we see in scripture, that prayer request was answered, amen. 
Paul knew that the Jews in Judea were out for him. That's why he asked for prayer here. And we don't learn about it until we get to Acts 21 through 23. So jot those verses down. I'd encourage you to read those this week to get the backstory. Acts 21, 22, 23. And what we read there is that when Paul arrives in Jerusalem, the Jews there find out that he's made it into the city and they go and arrest him. So arguably he gets the offering dropped off, but then he's arrested. He's brought into the city square. They begin to beat him and somehow he's able to get up and to speak to the crowd. I love this. He addresses the crowd, begins to share the gospel and his testimony with the, the Jews in Jerusalem, the same place where, where Christ was crucified for us. And then he begins to share his testimony. Yes, like, like you know, I was persecuting Jesus. And, and then he begins to say uh, his testimony until he gets to the part where he says, the, the grace of God has gone to the Gentiles. And as soon as he gets to that sentence, the Jews are like, we've heard enough. We were with you a little bit. We would love to know about our Messiah, but no, the, the grace of God to Gentiles, and they basically try to kill him. Um, in an incredible way, he ends up not killed, but brought before the Roman governor Felix as a Roman citizen, and then he waits for two years through bureaucratic red tape for the next governor, which is Festus, and he stands before Festus, who says, I don't want to deal with this. Send him back to Jerusalem. Just transfer him back. And Paul knows if that happens, if I'm delivered back to the Jews in Jerusalem, I'll be put to death. That's a death sentence. And so he says, I don't want the gospel to be put to death in my life. I want it to continue. And so he, knowing their unending plot to take his life, he appeals to Caesar. And so they said, okay, well, to Caesar you will go. And so maybe it is an answer to prayer. He really was delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, but it wasn't how he expected he was delivered from them. And yet, from what we understand in church history, even his third prayer request to make it to Rome is answered as well. But it's not answered in his timing. It's not answered in the way he expected. The book of Acts ends with Paul under house arrest, awaiting for his time to stand trial before Nero, to appeal to Nero. And the book of Acts ends with the phrase, that Paul had been chained, but the, the word of God continued unchained. And uh, praise God, it continues unchained today. You can't chain the word of God. You can't leash up the word of God. You can't stop the word of God from spreading from generation to generation. Here we are 2,000 years later. The word continues unhindered, amen? And yet, as he awaited his audience with Nero, John Stott says this, whether he reached and evangelized Spain, we shall probably never know. Well, we will know one day. The nearest thing we have to evidence is the statement by Clement of Rome in his first letter to the Corinthians, usually dated around 96, 97, about Paul's, quote, noble renown as a herald of the gospel. Here's what Clement said. To the whole world, he taught righteousness and reaching the limits of the West, he bore his witness before rulers. Some people believe that's Spain. Others even say that's as far north as Britain. But Stott goes on to say, it may be then, as has often been surmised, that Paul was released from his confinement in Rome, in which Acts leaves him, and that he then resumed his missionary travels, including a visit to Spain, before being re-arrested, imprisoned, and we know from church history, finally beheaded during the Neronian persecution. 
It wasn't how Paul dreamed it up. It's not how he planned it here as he speaks to the Romans. As Proverbs 19.21 reminds us, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it's the purpose of the Lord that will stand. His prayer was eventually answered, but not in how he had expressed it to his Italian brothers and sisters here. And yet, how encouraging that the gospel did reach the farthest reaches of the West, and Paul's life was lived for God's glory. So he concludes the book of Romans with verse 33. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Now, there is a theme of peace in Romans. He says here uh, to conclude the book, may the God of peace be with you all. There's been a theme we've been seeing throughout the book. Um, Just let me recap it really quickly. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 7 says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 17 says, The way of peace is not known to the unbeliever. So if you're here today and you're an unbeliever, the true way of shalom, of wholeness, of, of peace with God is not known to you. But the good news is, that's bad news, the good news is Romans 5, 1 says, we have peace with God since we have been justified by faith. In fact, Romans 8, 6 says, the mind that is set on the spirit is life and it's peace. We know that the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, Romans 14, 17. And then in chapter 16, Paul goes on to say, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. So Paul could conclude this book saying, may the God of shalom, the God of peace, Yahweh, may he grant you peace. May he be with you even if I'm absent from you. The God of peace will be with you all. Now, I've said a few times in the sermon this morning that this is the end of the book of Romans. And some of you are are raising a collectively curious eyebrow going, hold on, pastor, you made a mistake. There's another chapter. Well, yes, you're correct, chapter 16, but as someone pointed out to me in first service, this is much like an epilogue. Chapter 16, which we'll study next week and in a few weeks, and we'll break it into two two, um, sermons, uh, gives us a series of um, commendations to different people in the church in Rome. So there's greet so-and-so, greet so-and-so, and and we get to learn a little bit about these different uh, Roman believers, a little bit of a shout-out. Uh, And so we'll see in the next few weeks who Paul recognizes. So read ahead in chapter 16. But he really does wrap up the the flow of thought and the purpose for his letter here with these uh, final verses in Romans 15. Now, there are four ways that we can apply this text today. And I encourage us as a church um, to take the time of application to really lean forward and think, okay, how can this be applied, this text, in my life? This is something I would encourage you to ruminate on during the week, to, to chew on at lunch, to talk with whoever you're going to lunch with, talk with your spouse, your girlfriend, your parents, and, and just challenge yourself, okay, how can this be applied? And so here's four ways that we can apply this, or four questions that we can ask of ourselves this morning. In light of this text, here's the first question. In what way, or in what ways, am I serving the body of Christ with material blessings? So like the church in Macedonia and Achaia, how am I helping to serve the church joyfully with some material blessing? It could be with finances, to be sure, Um, but it doesn't have to end there. In fact, I've seen over the decades as a pastor um, the amazing joy of seeing the bride of Christ supported. Um, Jesus' bride has never been without. And it's so cool to see 
throughout the years different ways that this has happened. Um, sometimes it's been men in the church saying we have single moms that we want to help change their oil. Other times I've seen believers who uh, exchange their services in their career field with another believer and greatly reduce their price. We don't go into those relationships expecting a discount because they're a believer. We expect to pay them full price, but bless them. But sometimes they'll do that. In fact, uh, love Josh Fleming. Josh uh, and his uh, business helped us outfit much of this room in a construction way for free. Um, even um, one of our deacons, Michael Andrews, and his family came in, I don't know if you noticed, repainted the whole floor uh, over the Christmas break. Uh, and so we're blessed when people come and are able to do something in a, in a material way. Uh, some of us have brought baked goods on Sunday morning, and I will never, ever decline a woman who says, can I bring baked goods on Sunday morning? Praise God for you. You're willing to serve others uh, in, in a great way. Uh, sometimes people will take their assets and open their homes and practice hospitality. Those of you hosting equip groups or community groups in the past or our men's group, uh, the West family, or those hosting our young adults, uh, opening your home, using your assets for the glory of God. And like the book of Acts, some have even sold those assets to provide for the church. So what has God blessed you with? It's different for all of us to serve the body of Christ with. Secondly, here's another question. In what way or ways am I striving in my prayers for other believers? You notice that Paul asks with a strong appeal to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf. And there's a lot of words we could use to describe our prayer life, isn't there? And not to be convicting, but hopefully we would describe our prayer life as daily, consistent, um, fervent, intercessory. Maybe it's spontaneous. Maybe it's inconsistent lackluster, but I don't think striving is a word that many of us would use to say, that's my prayer of striving. But the word that Paul uses there is a word that means to fight with and to contend alongside, not to fight against, but to fight with. And my favorite way of translating that word is to assist in battle. We just heard about assisting in, in finances, but to assist in battle in prayer. We as Christians are not to engage in friendly fire where we train the weapon on each other, but on the enemy. And so just like the World War I trench warfare soldiers, we see someone taking a barrage of gunfire. We rally to them. We come alongside them. We pray for them. We pray with them. 2 Corinthians 1, Paul talks about receiving a sentence of death. And he was feeling overwhelmed in Asia. And here's what he says. He says, we trust in the God of the resurrection. Verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril, he will deliver us. On him we set our hope that he will deliver us again. So he trusts in God, but notice the next verse. You also must help us by prayer. Why? So that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. We trust that God's at work and God will do the work of deliverance, but we have a part to play in that deliverance. We have a part to play in God's sovereign plan. It's really inappropriate theologically to say, I'm just going to cross my arms and sit back and not pray because God is sovereign anyway. Well, God's going to have his plan succeed anyway. He doesn't need my prayer. No, no, no. Far be it from us. Because God is sovereign and because God answers prayer, we have the privilege and the joy and the obligation to join with him and our prayers should be much more fervent in our intercession. Amen. 
that we strive together with others. So in what way? What ways are you striving in prayer for the other members here at Shoreline? In what way are you striving in prayer for our elders and our deacons, for believers around the world? Right now, and in a moment, we're going to pray for Ukraine. We're going to pray for believers there and for believers in Russia. And as we consider what's happening in the world, we Many of us are, are driven to prayer, driven to intercede, and that's a good thing. Praise God. But we should have that same intensity, that same fervor in our prayers for one another. Number three, in what way or ways am I being refreshed in other believers' company? This one hurts a little bit more. So Paul says in verse 24, he wants to spend a little time with the church and he wants to enjoy their company. Verse 20, or 32, he says, I expect to come with joy and, quote, be refreshed in your company. Now, how many of us feel refreshed when we are in close, intimate, personal, spiritual contact with other people, with other Christians? How many of us are refreshed by that? You see, today we live in a day and age where we go, oh man, I just need some me time. I need to unplug. I need to stay home. I need to binge watch, not binge drink. <laughs> I need to binge watch something. I just need to be away from people. I need me time. How many of us say, like Paul, man, I just, I really need to be with other, I need some shoreline fellowship time. I just, I need to be around my other fellow believers. You see, one of the beautiful aspects of drawing closer together with other Christians is that we quickly realize, man, they are a bunch of sinners. In fact, we're all sinners. And we start to get close and we realize that person's not perfect. I thought they were, and they are definitely not. And they need my prayer. But then we start realizing I'm not alone here. I thought I was the only person struggling with this temptation. And I didn't believe 1 Corinthians 10 that said no temptations, you know, it's not, it's not uncommon to man, but God's faithful. And so we start to spend time and we start to measure others accurately. And what's interesting is that we begin to celebrate the evidences of God's grace with one another. Yes, there's differences and things that annoy us, but we start celebrating the evidences of God's work in their life. And we start realizing as I know others, I am now known. And what used to be safe in my solitary life isolated, I realized that solitary safety was an illusion because now I'm with others and now I'm truly safe. Like, like we think, I want to be the penguin on Antarctica that's braving the treacherous storms of winter. And yet we know what happens. They have to be huddled together in close company. So may we as believers learn to do what Paul says here, to be refreshed. In what ways? If there's no way at all, you're not being refreshed, I just want to encourage you to take the time to be known, to to be among the believers. Be refreshed with our church family. Finally, number four, a question for us. In what way, in what ways am I advancing the gospel even if my life and my livelihood are threatened? You see, as Paul left the church in Ephesus, he said this to the Ephesian elders, Acts chapter 20. He says, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. 
He says, I don't account my life of any value. The New King James says, none of these things move me. Like, where is that in men today? Where is the bold willingness to say, take my freedom, lock me up, threaten my livelihood, threaten my safety, threaten my security? Yeah, you can take my life, but I will not relent. I'm not going to shrink back. I'm going to finish my race with joy. I will testify to the glorious gospel of grace even at the threat of death. Where is that today in the men and the women of God who would say, devalue my safety, devalue the worth of my physical life, my comfort, my conventional wisdom, all for the sake of testifying to the gospel? You see, when Adoniram Judson left America to reach what's now Myanmar, at that time the, the people of Burma, various people groups. He was a young man who knew, I'm trading my life of ease for a life of overseas mission work. And here's what he said. He said, a life once spent is irrevocable. It will, be, it will remain to be contemplated through eternity. And he says this, it's too late to mend the days that are past. It's too late. The future's in our power. Let us then, each morning enabled by God's Spirit, resolve to send the day into eternity in such a garb as we shall wish to wear it forever. And at night, let us reflect that one more day is irrevocably gone. It's indelibly forever marked. In other words, we can't change what happened in the past, but we can look ahead and say, may today and tomorrow ring in eternity. May my life be worth something in the kingdom. When that young man, Adoniram Judson, arrived on the field, it took 12 years for him to see just 18 believers. 12 years to see 18 converts. He had a, a goal um, of seeing a church planted with 100 members and to have the Bible translated uh, in the particular uh, language of the people group he was reaching. But by the time of his death, not only had he translated the entire Bible, but he had also seen 100 churches planted and 8,000 believers come to faith. How old was he when he said, I'm trading my life of ease for God's mission for my life? He was 25 years old. In fact, a different missionary named James Calvert uh, was on his way on a ship to the cannibals of the Fiji Islands. And the captain of the ship was ready to turn it around. The captain said, young man, you will lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go among such savages. And Calvert replied this. He said, we died before we came here. You see, that's the Christian's response to these things. We say, I'm already died. I've already died. My life is hidden with Christ and God. I'm willing to do whatever he's called me to do. So may we, like James Calvert, like Adoniram Judson, like the Apostle Paul, say, I don't account my life as dear to me. And none of these things move me. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. May it be so in our lives for his glory and for our community's good. Amen? Let's stand together. Gracious God, we're thankful as we look at the life and the schedule, so to speak, of Paul's ministry plans. We're thankful that you and your sovereign plan directed him in a different way, a different path, and yet he was faithful to stand before kings and Gentiles, 
And Lord, imprisonment and trials did await, but those things didn't move him. He was willing to have his life poured out as a drink offering. And at the end of his life, he could say, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, I've fought the good fight. Lord, we are in a fight and we have a faith to keep. And Lord, we pray that none of these things would move us, that some here would be compelled by the gospel, by the spirit of God to go, to reach the ends of the earth, the places not yet reached. Lord, that we would see faithful believers from every nation, tribe, and tongue. Lord, for those of us who are not called to go, but called to send, Lord, would you remind us of the importance of holding the ropes today, that we wouldn't let go and just try to spend our treasure on ourselves, but Lord, we would give to the work of God around the world. Father, we thank you that we can join you in your work and support those who have the faith and the calling to go. And Lord, for all of us, we pray that we would submit our lives and not love our lives so dearly that we're not willing to lay them down for your sake. We think of believers in Canada, in Ukraine, even in Russia, throughout the world who are being put to the test for their faith. Lord, would you allow them today, like every Sunday, to gather in your name, to stand for truth, to declare your praises, as we've done today. Lord, we ask all this in the name that is above every name. And Lord, we ask this by the power of the Spirit, not that we're compelled to go out and try to muscle through this in our own strength, but that we'd be empowered by your grace, by your Spirit, even as we close and consider and sing that it's only by the work of your Spirit. Lord, we thank you for these things and we trust you in Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to our podcast. Shoreline Church meets every Sunday at 9 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. at the Port on Lena Road. You can get more content and more information by visiting thisisshoreline.com. If you have any questions or any prayer needs, please don't hesitate to email us at info at God bless you.